Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your goodness, for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we pray now that you would settle our hearts into your word, that we would hear from you. Words written by you, recorded by you, preserved by you. And yet we have the privilege of just holding your word in our lap. You're so amazing. So, Lord, please do a work in our hearts today through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 4. As you're turning there, um, if you're visiting, we have a habit. We go word by word, chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse through the Bible. Sometimes Old Testament, sometimes New Testament. So for the next few months, we'll be going through the book of Ezekiel. And uh, just uh, so everybody's up to speed, uh, we'll do a 30-second Old Testament history. Everybody okay with that? Let me time it just to see how accurate I was? No, I won't. Okay, 30-second Old Testament history. There's a guy named Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 uh, sons, and uh, one of whom was uh, disliked by his brothers, so they shipped him off to Egypt thinking to get rid of him. Lo and behold, he thrived under Pharaoh. Next thing you know, he's uh, the, one of the leaders of the nation of Egypt. Uh, they, there's a famine in the land. Uh, Joseph's family comes to Egypt. Next thing you know, there's two or three million of them, all right? And now they're a nation, and God's going to bring that nation uh, we now call the nation of Israel, out of, the, out of Egypt and going to take them into the promised land. But whoops, they decide they don't think they can handle the giants in the promised land, so they kind of reject that uh, command by God. God has them wander in the desert for 40 years and then brings them into the promised land through the next generation. They come into the promised land and they settle there uh, in the, uh, through the time of the judges. And then after the time of the judges, the, the nation uh, asks the last judge, who is Samuel, said, we need a king like all the other, you know, all the other kids in the neighborhood have a king. Uh, we need a king. So the first king is Saul, and then uh, David, and then Solomon, and then during the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, there's a split in the nation. Uh, the top ten tribes, uh, collectively known as the nation of Israel, uh, become one nation. And then the bottom two tribes, the uh, tribes of Judah and Benjamin, become collectively the nation of Judah. Fast forward uh, a few generations, the nation of Israel never has a godly king. They never have a time of national revival. They just, they just go into a downward spiral big time. And finally, in uh, 722, I believe it is B.C., the kingdom of Assyria comes and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel, disperses them, scatters them, and the nation of Judah, the southern tribe of Israel, is left. Uh, they had a few good kings, a few times of revival, um, and finally, uh, after more and more rebellion and sin, God brings the Babylonians to capture them, or basically to conquer them, and send them off to Babylon. Now, interestingly, the Babylonian conquest happens in three separate occasions. There's the one in 605 B.C. Babylon comes. They sort of thump Judah in a, in a skirmish, if you will. Send a bunch of captives off to Babylon. 
uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go off in that bunch. Skirmish number two happens in 597 BC, eight years later, and got to do that math backwards. You notice that? Slid math backwards in on you. So 597 BC, another skirmish. Ezekiel goes in that group, okay? There's going to be another one in 586 BC. By this time, the king of Babylon is done with them and decimates the nation of uh, Israel, decimates the city of, I'm sorry, the nation of Judah, decimates the uh, city of Jerusalem, and finally carries the rest of the captives off to, uh, to Babylon, where they will stay for 70 years and then be restored back to uh, Jerusalem. God's going to bring them back during the time of the Persians. All that to say, we find ourselves in 592 BC, five years after the second of those three conquests. Okay, And Ezekiel is now in Babylon in sort of the prison camp, if you will. And everybody back home in Judah, in Jerusalem, is like, you know, I think those first two skirmishes were just skirmishes. I think God's going to restore our homeland because, well, we deserve it, right? But what God is saying is, no, in 586, in yet another nine years, See, I did it. Six years. In another six years, no, God's going to let the Babylonians completely thrash you guys. Okay? So you get the idea? 32nd Old Testament history. Is that all right? Everybody got it? We all now have the Jewish mindset. So Ezekiel, as we've said in the last few weeks, he's approaching his 30th birthday. He's in the line of the priesthood. So he would have had a his, his career path was set for him, if you will. 30 years old, I get to be a priest. That's cool. That's a good gig. Uh, highly respected. Good pension plan. The whole nine yards. And lo and behold, now he finds himself a uh, refugee in a Babylonian prison camp. So he has lots of reason to whine, but we don't see him whine. What we do see is uh, a guy that's going to be used by the Lord. In, a, in an amazing way. And so nationally, you got this scene going on, right? The Israelites still think they're privileged by God because of all their heritage. And in fact, they are. But God can't overlook sin, which in fact, he can't. And so there's this sort of national tension going on a little bit. And what you have from God's perspective, God sets Jeremiah in Jerusalem. We read about him for several months. And God sets Ezekiel and Daniel. We'll get to him later. But in Babylon, to preach to these people, no, the problem is not the Babylonians. And the solution is not that Jerusalem is going to finally conquer Babylon after, three misfire, after two misfires. But no, the reality is you're sinners. You're unrepentant, rebellious sinners. And the solution is not further military conquest, but the solution is repentance. Right? And so that's the situation that he finds himself in. Chapter 1, we saw that he saw visions of God. God sort of showed up in a pretty dramatic way. Chapter 2 and 3, we read last week, he was given a scroll of the words of God. He was told to eat them. So, so far we've got some pretty weird things going on with Ezekiel, right? And uh, more 
even yet today. And he was to eat those words and preach them to, quote, the rebellious house of Judah. And so that's the scene we, we need to, we, where we find ourselves picking up. But before we get there, I want us to keep in mind this thing. When we read Scripture and we wholeheartedly adhere to the Scripture because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is for do- profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, right? It is all we need for life. And I know I ramble on that oftentimes, but by the way, it's all we need for life. We don't need it plus a good psychology book. We don't need it plus the right person in office. We don't need it plus anything. We need it plus the Holy Spirit to help us guide us into all truth, right? But the reality is the Word of God and the Spirit of God is what we need. And so we try to keep it as simple as that. But as we read the Word of God, I think it's important that we, that we look at it this way. Number one, what does it say? And this is how I, whenever I look at a Bible study, this is how I look at it. Number one, what does it say? It's hard to know what it says if we don't read it. Fair enough? Number two, what does it mean? Number three, what does it mean to me? And it's important that we look at it like that. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Very simple, but very important application for us. For example, if I say Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. What does it say? It says husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. What does it mean? Well, it means that Paul was writing a letter to the church of Ephesus encouraging their, the husbands in that church to love their wives like Christ loved the church. We know from the rest of the scripture how Christ loved the church. So that's what does it mean. What does it mean to me? If it's good enough for the Ephesian men, it probably applies to me, right? So that's the important thing. We, we, we look at that and we say, yep, I think that's reasonable that that applies to me because there are some things that don't apply to us, right? Jesus told Judas, Go do what, what you're going to do. You've heard this said, right? Uh, Jesus told Judas, hey, what you're about to do, go do. And then he went and hung himself, right? That doesn't apply to us, right? It applied to Judas, but not to us. Thank God, right? So, not, so we have to be discerning when we apply. But I say all that, we're going to read some weird things today. But they do apply to us, I think, very directly. So we're going to see Ezekiel play out four uh, sort of visual lessons. And I'll just give you the overview, then we'll read through them. Number one, Ezekiel is told by God to have this clay tablet with an iron barrier that he's going to do like a, uh, a model, you know, like, you know, playing with dolls or, you know, little soldiers or whatever when you're a kid uh, to depict uh, the city of Jerusalem. Number two, God's going to tell Ezekiel to lie on his side to represent their judgment. Number three, Ezekiel's going to eat some rationed, unclean food and water, signifying the famine that the Jewish people are going to go through. At number four, Ezekiel's going to shave his head and his beard, his, his hair and his beard, to signify the destiny of these people. So these are bizarre things, right? But I believe they have very important application to us as we read through this. So is that all the setup? Everybody good? All the background's laid, right? Foundation's been poured, right? Ready to build the walls right? Right? Is that all you got? You also, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, you also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. 
lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it, set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. You get the idea that there's something against the city of Jerusalem? Yeah. So this is to be a sign of the people. Uh, Ezekiel would have done this in a very visible place. Notice, by the way, God is doing these, I want to mention this, God is going to have Ezekiel do these visual lessons. And there's some interesting things that we could kind of glean from that. Number one, the nation didn't listen to God's word anymore. The nation no longer listened to God's word. By this time, Jeremiah has been preaching for a long time. And the nation didn't, didn't hear it. So sometimes when words don't work, God uses other means. And he's going to use some pretty radical graphic demonstrations to accomplish that. That's one side of it. From Ezekiel's side of it, you know, you can't say, all Christians are, we've been hammering this for the last few weeks, ministers. All Christians are ministers. You can't really separate the minister from the ministry. You get this? You cannot really separate the minister from the ministry. If I say something, I need to live that same something. We call that integrity, right? And so for Ezekiel, very much the ministry is the minister because the minister is not using words. He's using actions. So this first one, he's got a clay tablet. He's drawn out like the city of Jerusalem. He's doing this, it would presume, in a very public place because God wants this to be assigned to the people. It's going to be in a very public place, a very visible place, assigned to the people on this clay tablet with all this uh, familiar portrayal of, of a siege. Now, you've got to keep in mind, we don't really think of a siege in our day. Every generation, every historical time, if you will, has their own sort of means of warfare. You may recall, uh, during the reign of King Hezekiah, this would have been... Um, several years, several decades prior to this time, the Assyrians, after they had thumped the, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, they decided to come against Jerusalem. They formed a siege around the city of Jerusalem. Remember this? And Hezekiah prayed, and next thing you know, he, got, he wakes up the next day and looks out outside the city walls at the, at the siege, the, the army. This, the idea of the siege was basically you surround the city and you starve them out. And so Hezekiah prays, he looks outside, and lo and behold, there's a bunch of dead Assyrian soldiers. So the siege was over, right? But typically, the siege would have been, um, uh, basically, you surround the city and starve them out. And so that's what's being portrayed on this clay tablet. The, the Jewish people would have very much known what that was all about. They would have known the meaning of it, that that's what he was portraying. So then he goes to the second sort of word lesson. I'm sorry, let me finish the first one. Moreover, verse 3, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it and it shall be besieged and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. So it's a sign to the house of Israel. So it's obviously in a public place. And Ezekiel's got this clay tablet with Jerusalem depicted on it with all these battering rams against it and a siege around it depicted. And then he's got this weird thing. He's got this iron plate. Think of it like a big 
cast iron, like, I don't know, cookie sheet or something, I don't know. But uh, this big cast iron thing, and Ezekiel's kind of on the other side. Now, Ezekiel's speaking the words of God. So Ezekiel's sort of representing God, and then Jerusalem is there, and then what's this iron plate? It's a barrier between God and the people. It's a barrier between God and Jerusalem. And God wants Ezekiel to, or wants the people to know, you know what? Your sin has become a barrier to me. And that's, we see that throughout Scripture. That's what happens with the, when, when they refuse to obey God's word. And so you got this clay tablet depicting a siege. God separated by an iron, an iron wall, if you will. And then the second sort of word picture. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days. So you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you've completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear their iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. So Israel, house of Israel, 390 days, house of Judah, 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. So you picture this. Would it be weird? And again, you got to keep in mind, this is meant to be a sign to the nation. So it's going to be in a very visible place, right? Like if we were going to do this today, where would we do it? The great turnstile of, of, of rural culture in southern Indiana. Where would we do this? Walmart, front door Walmart, right? We'd be in the front door of Walmart. Can you picture walking into Walmart? Me laying on my side for 390 days. On my left side, just laying there. How you doing? Walmart greeter, right? Don't get paid for this. 390 days, right? That's over a year, right? And after a year of that, you wake up one day and you say, hey, I'm going to go get a gallon of milk. I wonder if Scott's still be laying there on his left side. Nope. He's on his right side now. He's mixing it up, right? 40 days on his right side. Is that weird? That's weird in any historical context. And it might even be so weird that the people would say, huh, wonder what he's doing. Right? And God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a day for each year that basically I'm punishing them. Now, commentators argue, what's the 390 and what's the 40? And certainly the northern kingdom of Israel was more sinful than the southern kingdom of Judah. But nobody really, you know, has any good explanation of the math of that. But basically God is sort of representing 390 years of judgment for Israel and 40 years of judgment for Judah. So uh, that's that. And it's going to be, again, very obvious to the people that something's going on here. And Ezekiel's trying to give them a message, uh, though not necessarily with words. God says, Therefore you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. Your arms shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy against it. And surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side till you have ended the days of your siege. So Ezekiel can't even physically move from one side to the other until these days are expired. And so his arm is uncovered. You know, nobody really knows what that means. Some, some say that 
uh, it's representing the judgment of God, like God's taking the gloves off. He's not going to protect uh, the house of Judah or Israel anymore. Um, and he's just going to bring judgment. So there you go. So we got, I said we had four action sermons. Okay. We've been through two of them. Everybody good? All right. The first one was this clay tablet with an iron wall and Ezekiel's on the other side of it. The second one is uh, uh, Ezekiel lying on his side for 390 days and then on his other side for 40 days. And notice these first two action sermons are really to depict to the people the reality of, you know what, the Babylonians are going to come and siege Jerusalem and there's going to be tremendous... uh, suffering as a result. Now these next two uh, word pictures, action sermons if you will, describe the horror of the coming judgment and it does get graphic. Verse 9, also take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentil, millet, and spelt and put them into one vessel and make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. You got it, you know, like what's he going to do at Walmart while he's lying on his side? Well, he's going to be eating. He's got he's to have food and water, right? So that he's going to eat this bread. And your food, the food which you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by measure, a sixth of a hen. From time to time you shall drink. And you shall eat it as, as barley cakes and bake it using, check this out, fuel of human waste in their sight. Then the Lord said, so shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. Now what in the world is he talking about? So, Basically, the idea is, most commentators say, he's just gathering together every kind of grain he can come up with, right? Barley was a poor man's grain. Wheat was sort of a, you know, a higher, higher quality grain, if you will. And basically, he's representing the idea that, you know, grab all the, beet, the barley, wheat, beans, lentils, millet, spelt you can get and kind of scoop them together and come up with whatever kind of bread you want. Now, You've heard of Ezekiel bread, right? Anybody ever heard of Ezekiel bread? Yes. You probably pay premium for it, don't you? Yes. Right? Well, God calls it, um, um, so shall the children eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles. So let me just suggest, when you pay extra for that, you're paying extra for defiled bread. And some people might do that, well, to be biblically like, you know, whatever, right? I'm eating Ezekiel bread. Well, if they ever tell you that, just ask them. And I think there's some in our fridge, right, even today as we speak. Yeah, so I'm mocking myself, right? Just say, thanks, Mom, for not cooking that over human waste, right? That's what I'm saying. Thank you, Mom, for putting it in the toaster, but not cooked over human waste, right? So we can thank God for that. But the idea is, this is just scrounging together whatever you can find. The idea is the people are going to be starved out. The food and water were to be rationed. The, the amount here given, the 20 shekels, amounts to about 8 ounces of bread and about 2 cups of water daily. Now consider the irony of their history. Remember when they were in the desert after God brought them out of Egypt? He's going to take them to a land, what? Flowing with milk and honey. Does this sound like milk and honey? No. Something went awry. 
since the days of milk and honey. You remember when the spies first went into the nation of, uh, what, into the promised land? When they were there at Kadesh Barnea, God told them to go up and spy and, and take it. They sent spies to spy out the land and they came back. Remember what they came back with? They said, it's an amazing land. The grapes, the grapes are so massive that in order to carry clusters of grapes, they had two guys with a pole, and the grapes straddled over the pole. That's the kind of, that's the kind of vegetation that was in the land. That was kind of the, that was the abundance. That was the promised land. That was the land flowing with milk and honey. And now we're eating scavenger bread cooked over human waste. That begs the question, how did we get to this point? And so that, in my mind, is the application. We'll get to more of that later. But just keep in mind, we're talking about the land flowing with milk and honey. Or now we're eating scavenged uh, bread that God calls the defiled bread among the Gentiles. It's amazingly ironic. Verse 14, so I said, even Ezekiel has his limits, right? I like this. I'm okay with this. I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till, till now. Remember, he's in line for the priesthood, right? So he probably never cooked anything over human waste. He said, I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I'm giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. So Ezekiel says, God, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. That human waste just pushes me over the edge too far. God said, all right, all right, I'll cut you some slack. You can argue whether or not that's God's sovereignty or not. You can argue that if you want. But anyway, cow dung was commonly used for fuel in those days, right? And so, uh, you know, just thank your mom that you don't have Ezekiel bread cooked over cow dung either. But he did. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, Surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety and shall drink water by measure and with dread that they may lack bread and water and be dismayed by, with one another and waste away because of their iniquity. Right? And so, you know, we say, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Oftentimes, God will give us the what does it mean part. What does this mean, like eating all this scavenged, uh, defiled bread and drinking rationed water? Well, God says, you know what? In the coming uh, siege, they're going to be so starved out that they're going to eat bread by weight with anxiety. They're going to drink water by measure with dread. And it's all going to be because of their iniquity. Not because the Babylonians are stronger than they are, but because of their iniquity. That's what's got them to this point because of their iniquity. All right? So, we've been through three of the action sermons, right? We've been through the clay tablet, we've been through the lion on your side, and now we've been through the uh, gnarly defiled bread and, and rationed water. Everybody good so far? Okay. Chapter 5. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, and take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. 
Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire a third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take a third and strike around it with a sword, and a third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. Well, that's kind of curious. So now he's going to cut his hair and his beard. By the way, that would have been a sign of humiliation in that culture, right? To be shaved and, and have, have all your hair cut off was, it's cool now, right? It's cool now, but it would have been uh, not so cool in those days. So Ezekiel's going to go through that. But again, God is going to give us the interpretation of this. Look at, flip over to verse 12. God says, A third of you shall die of the pestilence, and be concerned, consumed with famine in your midst. A third shall die by the sword all around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. So, back to verse 1 and 2. So Ezekiel cuts off all of his hair and his beard with a sword. By the way, if you shaved this morning, men, did you use a sword? be awkward, right? Right? Yeah, thanks, right. Yeah, right. He says, use a sword. That would have been unusual. Lots of, the, get used to unusual now with, uh, with Ezekiel. So he's using a sword. That would have been bizarre. Use the sword as a razor. Razor. It's a sign of, there's going to be violent judgment. The sword is a picture of violence. And so, again, another graphic description. And so, he's dividing this hair into three, three piles. Part of it's going to represent death by pestilence. Part of it's going to represent death by the sword. And part of it's going to be scattered. Three piles. Notice also here now. I like this. Verse 3. You shall also take a small number of them, that is of the hairs, and bind them in the edge of your garment. So you got three piles. You're going to weigh out your hair, your hair and your beard. A third for pestilence, a third for, um, I'm sorry, a third for pestilence and famine, third for the sword, third to be scattered. But oh, there's going to be a small part that you're going to tuck away in, your, in the corner of your garment. What does that represent? God always saves a remnant. God always saves a remnant. Now some commentators say that's the remnant of people that are going to left, be left back in Jerusalem that survive. Others would suggest that, no, there's a remnant of people that are going to be carried off to Babylon, preserved there for 70 years, and then brought back to the city of Jerusalem to sort of restore the nation of Israel. I believe that that's probably the more accurate interpretation, particularly in the context of all of Scripture. Because what is God preserving? When he goes to Babylon and he comes back, what's he preserving? He's preserving a line to the Messiah. Jesus Christ is going to be born. He's going to be a child of the tribe of Judah. And his genealogy is going to be recorded in Matthew chapter 1. And that line needs to be preserved. So there's always a remnant. You ever notice this? And I like this. If our nation goes the way of Old Testament Judah, we can choose to be a part of that remnant by following the Lord. Right? There's always a remnant. And we can choose to be a part of that remnant by following the Lord. And so God always preserves a remnant. God's going to have... God won't let the plan to 
preserve the line to the Messiah uh, be compromised in any way. He says, verse 4, Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. So again, uh, just a, a pretty brutal picture of judgment. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments. They have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. So God's reviewing the history of the Jews and the rationale for his judgment. Basically, they're worse than the pagan nations around them. So, you know, they, God brought them into the promised land to be a light to the Gentiles, and they turned out to be darker than the Gentile nations around them. And so again, the clay tablet, God says, I'm going to bring a siege against Jerusalem, right? The lion on their side, God says, it's because I'm bringing judgment because of all your iniquities, right? The the scavenged bread and rationed water, there's going to be famine and starvation, and it's going, to be, it's going to be terrible. And then the cutting of the hair, and you know what? There's going to be consequence. Here's how it's going to play out. Some of you are going to die by, the, by pestilence and famine. Some are going to die by the sword, and some are going to be scattered. A remnant will be preserved, but that's basically the fate of most of the people, and it gets bad. Are these fun words to read? Not really. But I think they're important for us. Look at this. I'm sorry I have to read this, but it's for us. Verse 10. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. Now for us, those are just words on a page. But just pause and Capture that for a moment. The famine will get this bad. The famine will get so bad that human beings will resort to cannibalism of their own family members. That's bad. You know, I think oftentimes God will let a human being get to a point so low. Um, now, God will nobody will ever get to this. But God will let human beings get to a point so low that it makes the lights come on. Have you ever noticed this? Maybe in our own journeys. I remember in my journey, I mean, I, I had a journey, right? And I remember, uh, I remember in that journey, there were times where I thought, my life is going nowhere. And I need to wake up. Right? I mean... We all go through that in some ways at, at times, right? And I think, you know, like the prodigal son. Prodigal son, prodigal son in the in New Testament, right? He gets to a point in his journey where 
It says he wasted his life in riotous living, right? And who knows what all that meant. But he finds himself at a point feeding pigs, right? A Jewish man, by the way, feeding pigs and realizing that those pigs are better fed than he is. And the Bible says, when he came to his senses, he said, I'm going to go back and apologize to dad. When he came to his senses, sometimes in life, there comes that point where the lights come on, we look back, and again, maybe we do this in small ways. But I've got to ask myself the question. We're talking about God brought the people into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey that had grapes that were too heavy for one person to carry. And now we are cannibalizing our family members. How do you get from point A to point B? This is for me, what does the Bible say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? This is what, it, to me, this is what it means to me. And I, as I prayed through this, I, 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 frankly, I, I was heavy-hearted about this this week. And I look, and, I, and my mind, you know, kind of does this thing. And I think about their history. Okay, they're at this point. They're at point B. How did they get to point B? Was it back during the reign of Jehoiachin? You know, he was kind of a wicked king. And his father was Josiah. Josiah was a good king. Was it that we didn't hang on to the reforms of King Josiah, and instead we kind of went back to paganism? Well, really, it probably happened before that, right? Did it happen during the reign of Manasseh when, uh, you know, they were so wicked that they were child sacrificing and all kinds of other crazy stuff like that? Yeah, that was pretty bad. But maybe it happened before then. And, you, and as my mind, I'm tracing my, I'm tracing my Jewish history backwards. That's why I went through that 30-second thing at the beginning. In my mind, I'm tracing my Jewish history backwards. And I think, was it during the reign of Rehoboam when they split? No, maybe not. I know. Was it during the reign of Solomon? You know, Solomon was the son of David. David was an awesome king. But David had one problem, right? David had a problem with women, candidly. Solomon, his son, had a big problem with women. A thousand-fold problem with women, right? 700 wives and 300 concubines. I'm going to call that a problem, right? And many of those wives worshipped foreign gods. So Solomon loves those wives... He worships their gods, and next thing you know, the whole nation's worshiping these gods to the point of we find ourselves cannibalizing our children. Is that where it started? You could go back. I mean, and we could do this all day long. But in my mind, I go back. And as I play this out in my mind, I go back to those that Jewish nation in Egypt, that God brought them out of Egypt, right? That was, in my mind, sort of the last time that we saw a nation that was like, God didn't have much negative to say about them, right? They're, they're there, they've, they've prospered after the generations of Joseph, right? 
and God brings them out amazingly after ten plagues in the nation of Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea. They watch the Red Sea part. As they get on the other side of the Red Sea, Miriam leads them in this worship song, and they're celebrating their great victory over the Egyptians. And in my mind, I'm thinking, from that point on, we should have a rock star history of the nation of Israel. Right? And it takes about three seconds reading the Scripture. You're like, they start whining about meat and water? Are you kidding me? And they get meat and water. About three more seconds, they start whining about something else. And they start whining about something else. And they start whining about something else. And as I think about it, again, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me that your fathers shall eat their sons in their midst and the sons shall eat their fathers? I will execute judgments among you. What does that mean to me? It means there's a journey. We're in a relationship with God. This is not a religious exercise that we're experiencing. We're experiencing a relationship with God. And as I journey backwards on that history of the Jewish people's relationship with God, here's where I, in my mind, it starts with a failure to appreciate all the goodness of God. And as I think about relationships, I think about, you know, marriage or any other kind of relationships, where does, the, where does, a, where does a downward spiral start? When we take somebody for what? Granted. Right? Can I exhort us today? Has God been good to us? Is God amazing? Did Jesus Christ die on a cross for the salvation of each and every one of us? That for so God so loved the world that, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did he do that for us? Yes. Did he bless us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ? Yes. Did he bless us above and beyond all we can ask or think? Then what is up with human beings that we would forget that? But we do. But we do. Next thing you know, life happens. I don't feel like getting out of bed to go worship the one who died on a cross for me. I'm, I'm trying hard not to lay a trip. I'm trying hard not to lay a trip. But I'm super burdened by this. We as believers, and, and let me just say this. In my mind, I was telling, I think Tracy and I were talking about this this week. I'm glad God made me a pastor. You know why? Because I have to be here every Sunday. <laughs> right? I don't wake up in the morning and say, eh, I don't feel like getting up this morning and going to church. I've got to be here. Right? Maybe God knew that I needed that. Right? And And... You know, it's, it's always weird. I don't want to be the pastor harping on church attendance because that sounds self-serving. I'm talking about don't take God for granted. In the history of the Jewish people, they go from a land of milk and honey, a land that's got grapes that you can't even carry, to dire straits this severe 
over a course of time that I believe began with a lack of appreciation and whining. Right? Now, none of us are worshiping idols. But we all have those moments where we lack appreciation and we whine. Is that fair? Can I just tell us, that's the time to repent. Not after we start sacrificing our children, but here. Right? That's the time to repent. So, this famine got bad. It took them to a low point. These were God's chosen people. They were blessed by him. Things went bad, bad wrong. And I believe it started with failure to acknowledge God's good enough to follow him in faith and stop taking him for granted. You know, every consequence in life, in our journey with God, I mean, I'm not saying everything happens because, you know, God lets us go through hard times. So I'm not saying we have hard times because of sin exclusively. But in our relationship with God, there's always a starting point. When we, when we wander from the Lord, when we get far from the Lord, it has a starting point. It has a starting point. And at each point on that journey, there's opportunity to repent. Why is God telling these Jewish people? Has the siege happened yet, by the way? Has the starvation happened yet? Has the cannibalism happened yet? No. Why is God telling them now? Because He wants them to repent. He wants to give them a last opportunity to repent. Therefore, verse 11, As I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. A third shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third shall fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that all are around you in the sight of all who pass by. So, the destruction hasn't happened yet, and they have opportunity to repent. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you. When I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. So these judgments are going to be a lesson not only for the people, but all the nations around them that they were supposed to be a light to. Have you ever noticed this? No matter how bad it gets, there are going to be... The human heart is capable of such hardness that even... At times like this, there will be human beings that won't repent. But let's not be that. Let's not, let's not that. Let not that be said of us. So, 
If we're thinking long-term and big picture, we are at some point on our life journey, right? We're currently headed in a certain direction. Culturally, nationally, but individually. I'm talking about individually now. You're on a road. You're on a road, and that road has a destination. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 Jesus says we're on one of two roads. We're on the broad road that leads to destruction, and many are those who find it. There's another road, the narrow road that leads to life, and there are few who find that. A remnant that find that. And, I mean, that's the big picture road, right? But I think even in that, I mean, we can find ourselves on the narrow road that gets us to heaven, okay? I get that. But even on that road, you ever notice that we have a tendency to maybe take God for granted? Maybe get a little lax? Maybe need to wake up and come to our senses and reassess and get on the right road? Because there are, you know, now again, you could argue theologically and, you know, I'm not here to do that. But I'm just saying it's possible to wander from a state of appreciating God and serving Him obediently and faithfully. Lord, we thank You that You are so good to us. Lord, we acknowledge that in any relationship Sometimes there's so much to, so much goodness that it just becomes so normal. And normal can be a trap. And so, Lord, today we ask that you would cause us not to lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways we would acknowledge you and that you would direct our paths. So, Lord, please keep us on that right path. Just the path of appreciating who you are and living accordingly. So have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us by your Spirit this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.